The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Thank you to Elizabeth and the team for leading us this morning in worship. If you're wondering where Caleb is, he's on his honeymoon. So he's rightfully not here at church with us this morning. So Caleb and Summer got married on Thursday this past week, and they are somewhere not accessible by email. That's all I know, which is where I told him to be. Like, don't, if I see you respond to work email, Caleb, I'm going to call you and tell you to knock it off, right? Like, get out of here, go, go on vacation, have a good time. So we're, we're excited for them, and we're so thankful um, for Elizabeth and the team for, for leading us this morning. And it is so good to be here again with you. I'm like, yeah, I get to be here in person. It's like, it's not just a one week thing, it's every week. I'm so, um, I'm so excited. And thank you. As, as I said last week, we have just been so blessed um, from the outpouring of love and support that, that so many of you have, have uh, given us. I've never eaten so many fresh fruits and vegetables in my life that I have the last two weeks. And I'm thankful. Praise the Lord. Like, it's delicious. I, I love it. I love it. Well, when I, uh, when I was in college, probably like most everyone in college, you, you look for that thing that you love to do with your friends that also is financially affordable, right? Remember those college days where you're like, I want to have fun, but I don't really have much money to have fun with back when we're 18, 19, 20 years old. And one of the things that I discovered when I moved to the city of Chicago for college that I could do for fun, that I love to do, that was actually a pretty good price was go to Blackhawk games. The National Hockey League team, the Chicago Blackhawks, back then they were really bad when I went to college. And so they they were trying to fill the United States So they would offer, if you were a student, they would give you half off your ticket. The tickets cost $15. So for a student, it was $8 and the arena was empty. So you could sit anywhere you wanted. You could sit right by the ice for $8. It literally was cheaper than going to a movie. So we, my friends, we would go to hockey games all the time. The arena would be empty. You would just walk in, get your ticket right before the game and you could sit anywhere you wanted. It was great. And then they drafted a couple good players and they started winning. And what happened in the span of just a few years, of which they won the Stanley Cup three times, um, is, is that the ticket prices quadrupled. No student, I wasn't a student anymore, a student discount was given. But this phenomenon happened in that when no one would go to the game, suddenly the team got good and there was excitement and buzz and all of these fans came out of nowhere to start to show up again what we would call fair weather fans or bandwagon fans. Now, I am sure this is just a Midwest thing. And this was not experienced here about a certain basketball team about five or six years ago. I am convinced that would never happen in the Bay Area. That's just a Midwest thing. That that would never happen out here, right? Um, And we, we see this phenomenon, right? That suddenly when there's buzz, there's excitement about something, people kind of come out. Right? They come out for, for the show. They want to be entertained. Suddenly things are exciting and fun. And oh yeah, let's, let's join in on this. As Jesus began his ministry, this attitude characterized many of the people who followed after him. They weren't really following Jesus, but they had heard the buzz. They had heard some of the things that had been done and they were there for the show. They were there for the excitement. They were there to be wowed by what was going to happen. 
They hadn't been there at the beginning. They wouldn't be there at the end, but they were like, yes, entertain us, show us something amazing. This truth characterized much of the people of Israel, not a deep faith and commitment to Jesus, but wanting just to be wowed by what he did. And in the midst of this attitude, which we're going to look at in amongst the people of Israel, there's, there's a story that takes place in the gospel of John. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I would encourage you to follow along with us. We're going to be in John chapter 4. And if you actually have the text, it'll be helpful because we're going to jump back in a little bit just to some of the verses before. If you don't have your Bible, it's printed in the, the handout that you received on the way in. So we are, we started last week, if you weren't here with us, we're, we're doing the seven signs, as, as John calls them, in the Gospel of John. These are miracles, but not just miracles that demonstrate the power of God, but specific signs that point to the identity of who Jesus is and what he wants from us. And that first sign we looked at last week was Jesus turning water into wine. And so the second sign we're going to look at this morning is in John chapter four, starting at verse 46. John chapter four, 46. And as we look at this story this morning, I hope we can discover three marks of true faith. Three marks of true faith. Not this faith that shows up when there's signs and wonders and it's awesome and the crowds are coming, but three marks of, of true faith. Because we all know those people who just show up when the time is good, they're not true fans. They're not true followers. They're just there for the excitement. And I want us to think about this morning, is that how we are with Jesus? Do we just show up for what Jesus can do for us? Or do we have a true faith that will be characterized in this passage this morning? So John chapter four, starting verse 46. So he, being Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, right? It's connecting us back to that passage. It's about two chapters before. So it's connecting us back to John chapter two. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Capernaum to Cana is about a 20-ish mile journey. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The first mark of true faith that we see in this passage, the first mark is a desperation for Jesus. True faith is marked by a desperation for Jesus. And so this other man who's in this story beside Jesus, we don't really know his name. We don't know a lot about him, but we know it says that he is an official. An official. An official in this time would have meant that he served for the king. It was a high-ranking government position, likely in the court of King Herod. And so we can safely assume all of the things that would have been naturally assumed about someone who was an official for the king in this time. The official had wealth. This went hand in hand with serving the king. He was someone who had much financial means. He had success. This was in their day near the top of the corporate ladder, right? You couldn't get much higher than being an official for the king. He had power. He had the king's ear. He had, he had all the power that could go with it. Not only that, but we see here in the story, he had family. God had blessed him with family as well. On the outside, looking at this official, you would say, that's a success right there. He's got success. He's got power. He's got money. He's got a family. What more could he need? 
Yet even if we have all of the worldly measures of success, if that's our measure of success, something will always come up that will show the emptiness of finding value in it. Right? And this crisis for his son exposes the hearts of this man. And he hears that Jesus is coming. His son being sick has made him desperate. He comes himself. This is too valuable to send a servant or someone else who we'll see later in the story. He has. He has people that he could send. But no, he doesn't send someone else. He has to go himself. It's that important. It's, it's worth his time. He goes himself. He makes the 20-mile journey by foot. This isn't like Jesus was walking through town, and so he walked outside his house and wanted to, to ask Jesus. No, he makes a significant journey to find him. And then it says he went and he asked him to come down and heal his son. When it says he asked, it's not like this man found Jesus and was like, hey, hey, Jesus, if you got a moment, my son could use some help. Jesus is like, no, thanks. He goes, all right, sorry, no worries. And walks away. No, the, the, the idea here is that this word could be translated, he begged, he pleaded. And how, how it's framed is it's an ongoing, continual action. So this is a man who's coming and he's around Jesus and he's begging him, he's pleading him. It's not just a polite one-time request, but he is desperate for Jesus's help. See, when we're desperate, we'll go through whatever means necessary to get what we need. Right? Have you ever been desperate? Have you ever met someone who is truly desperate for something? I thought this last week uh, of, of something, I, it was a story that popped in my mind from 20 years ago that I hadn't thought of in forever. When I was young, growing up in junior high and high school, I raced mountain bikes. Um, it's, a, it's a great sport. It's one of the reasons why it's awesome to live in Morgan Hill, right? Is the great mountain biking and cycling we have here. And I, I raced mountain bikes, and I still remember there was this race. I was in high school at some point, and, and it was a race. I lived in Michigan at the time. It was one of those hot, muggy, humid Midwest summer days. If you've never experienced 90 degrees with 95% humidity, God bless you. You have been privileged not to have to experience that. It's just gross is like the only way to describe it. But the bike race was scheduled, and so the race goes on. And I still remember that there were a couple guys that year, Mike and Ben were their names, who were typically faster than me. And it was, I believe, a three-lap race. And sure enough, Mike and Ben, by the end of the first lap, were riding ahead of me. And then the second lap, they were still quite a ways ahead. And I remembered when I came around to the start of the third lap, people started telling me, hey, you're, you're catching Ben. You're actually catching up to him. And so you're tired, you're exhausted, but then this adrenaline starts running, right? Like, I can catch him. I can get second place. I, I can do this. And so I remember you're, you're focused in and, and you're trying all you can to catch this guy. And so I'm, I'm looking out as I'm riding through, where's Ben? Where's Ben? And then I come across Ben and it's not how I expected him. He is not riding his bike. He's sitting on the side of the trail on his ground with his head between his knees. And he hears me and he looks up and, he go, and his face is pale He's white. He's got salt all over him from sweating so much. And he just looks at me and goes, Michael, please give me some water. Please give me some water. He had been so severely dehydrated. His body literally just shut down and he was sitting on the side of the trail. He couldn't even go. And I never will forget that, that look of desperation. He's like, I, I need it. And I thought to myself real quick, well, I probably can still beat him if I give him water. I still, that, that selfishly that thought went through. And so I did toss him the water bottle and I did still beat him. So God bless the action. I got, oh. I don't, that's not the moral of the story. That's not right. 
But I'll never forget, like, it wasn't just, hey, I'm thirsty. It's like, I, I have to have this. I need this. See, we all have a desperate need for Jesus. The psalmist says in Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, we all have a need for Jesus, but there's oftentimes that God brings circumstances into our, into our lives that truly highlights that need. Right? Every one of us woke up this morning needy, but there's times where God pushes on our lives and we see how great our needs are. When thinking of being desperate for Jesus, what Jesus asks of us is to admit something that we each know to be true, but we don't want to say. We all know it's true, but we don't want to say it about ourselves. And it's this, we aren't okay on our own. We aren't okay on our own. You cannot be desperate for Jesus if you think you are okay by yourself. And so often we think that we are okay. And so a desperation for Jesus starts with this, just admitting our need for him. Admitting our need for him. Wherever you find yourself this morning, there is a place desperately in your life where you need Jesus. And I wanna challenge you just to admit to Jesus, God, I need your help. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to need Jesus's help. It's okay that you can't do it on your own. For those of you who are exhausted this morning, it's okay to tell Jesus that to tell him I need your strength because I don't know how I can get through the rest of this day, let alone this next week. For those of you who are stressed, family, finances, pressure, work, it's okay. Jesus knows the pain of your life. He knows the pressure you face. For those who are confused about the future, admit it to Jesus that you need his guidance and direction that you don't know what the next step should be. See, the irony is this, our great needs prove God's great power. Our great needs prove God's great power. There was a man named Paul who wrote most of what we call the New Testament, a powerful missionary, converted many people, traveled and gave his life to Jesus and, 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 gave, and led so many other people to Jesus, started churches. But he had what he calls in the Bible, what he called his, his thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it is, probably some physical ailment. But he writes in 2 Corinthians 9 that God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. God's power is perfected in the weakest moments of our lives. In our desperate needs, that's where God gets the most glory. So the weaknesses, the hardships in our lives aren't meant for us to cover up and act like we have it okay, but for us to bring to Jesus and allow him to provide. Are we desperate this morning? Are we desperate like how the psalmist cries are? Are we desperate like this official that if Jesus doesn't do something, it's not going to be okay? Because that mark of desperation is a mark of true faith in Jesus. So this official comes, pleads, begs with Jesus. Jesus' answer to him is in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, 
unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What? What, what, what is Jesus doing here? All right, we're, we're going to break this down, all right? The second mark of true faith, the second mark of true faith that Jesus is getting to in these words is this, is hearts of worship and wonder. The second mark of true faith is that our hearts are characterized by worship and wonder of Jesus. So Jesus says this statement, and this seems like harsh and insensitive. It's not. We're going to get through the story. Don't close it off yet, right? But one of the keys to this is, is at least in my Bible, next to the, it says, unless you, there's a little number to it. And underneath it says that you is plural, all right? He's not talking to the official who's come before him. What Jesus does is the official comes and pleads, and Jesus looks around to all the Israelites, and he says, unless all of you see some sign, see some wonder, you all will not believe. All right, this could be like if you're from the South or have friends, unless all y'all do this, unless all of y'all, it's not just you, the official, he's talking to the crowd. It's characteristic of Jesus's response and reception amongst his own people in Israel. Look back at verse 45, the verse right before this section. He had been in Samaria, the woman at the well, that well-known story in John chapter four, where, where he, he did this, not miracle, right? But, but spoke to her of her past and she believed in Jesus. And so many Samaritans believed, but look at verse 45. So when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Having seen, they're like, hey, this guy does miracles. He does really cool stuff. We've seen him do amazing things. Now we want him to come. Now we want him to be here. It's contrasted with the response of the Samaritans who were hated by the Jews. This hated group of people, the Samaritans, when Jesus showed up in Samaria, what was their response? Look at verse 39 of chapter four. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Not because of the signs, not because of the things that he had done, but because of his word, because of his teaching, because of who he said he was. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, the Samaritans are believed because of my word. My own people, the Israelites, need signs and miracles. They're asking for it. He's calling out to the crowds and he's saying this, you all are here just chasing after miracles. You're not chasing after me. You're not here for me. You're here for what I can do for you. He's calling this out to the crowd. And if there's ever been a call of Jesus that's true for so much of us today in the culture and the world we live in, it's this that we live in our Western world in a consumer mentality, a consumer mindset. Everything in our world is driven around the fact of what can someone else do for me? This is how we go, where we go shopping, where we go on vacation. Everything in our life is revolved around what can someone else do for me? How can this help me? And because this is just the culture in which we swim, our mindset for this has infiltrated how we think about the church and how we think about God. How can God help me? What is God doing for me? How can this church best fit my needs? I hope I like the songs. I hope the sermon's not too long because I have lunch plans afterwards. I hope it's good for me today. Our, our view of life revolves around us. 
And unless we consciously choose otherwise, this becomes our natural bent towards Jesus because it's the world in which we live. Unless we say, I'm not gonna view Jesus as just what he can do for me, our mindset will go to there. Theologian David Wells says, we have turned to a God that we can use rather than to a God we obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights. Or as Kenda Dean put it, today we are more likely to view God as a source of fuel than a source of awe. We're more likely, more likely to use God as a source of fuel. What can you provide for me than to stand back in awe and wonder and worship of him? One of the defining characteristics of American Christianity, and I say that in this quotes because it's people who identify as Christian but don't necessarily live in it. One of the most prominent views is that God's job is to make me happy. God's job is to make me happy. That's a prominent view amongst Americans who call themselves Christian. That's what God does, to make me happy. So how do we know if we have this consumer mindset, if we are here for the show, for the signs, for the wonders like the people of Israel were? How do we know if we have this? One of the best measures of this is our response to suffering. How do we know if we're following Jesus for what he can do for us or for who he truly is? One of the best things is our response to suffering. See, suffering removes the blessings and it asks us this question, are you here for what God can do for you or are you here for him? Are you here for what Jesus can do for you or are you here for Jesus? See, so often we love what Jesus can do for us, but we don't really love Jesus. We're here for what he can do. But true love, true relationship is defined not by what someone can do for us, but loving them irregardless of what they do or they don't do for us. As I was thinking this past week of it, my, my memories came of a graduate school professor of mine whose name is Dr. John Feinberg. He was raised in a, a kind of a rich theological heritage. His dad was actually the first dean at Talbot Theological Seminary, which is Biola's seminary, many years ago. He was a professor very early on. He was at Western Seminary, a few others, and then most of his career, he's been at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which in my unbiased opinion as an alumni is the best school out there. Um, so he's been there for 30 years as a professor, a gracious man of God, a prolific author, a great teacher. I had him for several, yeah, several different classes. But what's amazing about Dr. Feinberg is if you start to know him, he doesn't travel a lot. He doesn't go international. He doesn't do a lot of external speaking out of the immediate Chicago area. And he doesn't talk about it very widely for most of his career. But it's because in 1987, his wife was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. And slowly but surely, it's a disease that gradually devastates physical and mental capacities of people. And if you heard in class, like I did, Dr. Feinberg talk about his wife, Pat, he talks about her with such love and care and affection and grace, you'd have no idea that his life revolves around taking care of her, that she's in a wheelchair, that she eats from a feeding tube and that she can't even talk anymore. She can do nothing for him, but it hasn't changed his love for her. See, that's what true love is. Not what someone can do for me, but you're there whether they can do something for you or not. Does this characterize our relationship with Jesus? 
Do we worship the blessings or the one who provides the blessings? Are we worshiping the gifts that God gives us? Are we worshiping the giver of all good things? The reality is this. If God did not bless each of us, if God did not give us one more thing for the rest of our lives, not one more blessing for the rest of our lives, Jesus would still be worthy of all of our love, all of our worship, all our devotion. Jesus does not owe us anything. He does not owe us anything. If he didn't give us one more thing, he would still be fully worthy of all of our worship. So do we worship Jesus? Are you here today at church because of what it can do for you? Or are you here because of the God that we worship? The answers may look on the outside, it may look the same, but it's the heart. Why are you here? Why do you worship Jesus? Is it because of who he is, what he's done for you, the love that you have been so compelled to him because of the cross and him adopting you into his family? Or is it just because you're hoping that he'll bless your children or you need some prayer from someone? So you're hoping he'll do this in your life and maybe if you follow him, he'll help you in some way. See, God is not a God just to be worshiped because of what he can do for us, but he's worthy to be worshiped for who he is. And so a true mark of faith is hearts of worship and wonder of who Jesus is, not just what he does for us. So Jesus asks this question to him. Verse 49, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. He's desperate. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The third mark of true faith that we see in this passage is obedience in the unknown and unseen. Obedience in the unknown and the unseen. See, I love this. The official's like, Jesus, I need you to come down to Capernaum. It's 20 miles away. Jesus, I need you to come over here. I need you to come over here. Jesus says, go. I'm not coming with you, but go. Your son will live. And notice what happens. The official believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Almost the same expression that was back in verse 41 that characterized the Samaritan's faith because of the word of Jesus they believed. He believed the word, not the sign. He believed the word that Jesus spoke and he lived his life accordingly, right? He went back. He didn't say, okay, that's great, Jesus, but you still need to come with me just in case it didn't actually happen, No, he believed what Jesus said and then he acted in obedience to what Jesus had said. His faith shaped his action even though he did not yet know the outcome. He couldn't call home. He couldn't text his wife, be like, hey, so how's little Johnny doing? Oh, he's better. Great. Thanks, Jesus. Appreciate it, right? He he had no way of knowing if it had actually happened, but he had to obey even though he didn't know the outcome. See, the reality is this, if you say you trust God, belief, trust, the same word in the Bible, if you say you trust God, but you don't obey God, you don't actually trust God. If you say you trust God, but you don't obey God, you don't actually trust him. Obedience must follow after trust. If we have belief and trust without obedience, it's not genuine trust. So the man is told this, he acts accordingly. 
Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. See, the sign affirmed his faith, but the belief was already there. He believed the word and the sign that he received his son being healed. And I love that. He gets into the nitty gritty, the specifics. Give me the exact time. And he goes, oh yeah, that wasn't chance. That was Jesus. The exact hour. He goes, that, that must have been it. And the sign affirmed his faith that was already there. Jesus's word was enough for him, even though he didn't see the end result. See, too often in our lives, we only practice something that I like to call obedience in the light. We practice obedience in the light, meaning this, that if God calls us to do something and I'm, I see the clear end result and I'm like, that makes perfect sense, Jesus. Yes, I will obey, right? When God calls us to do something, it makes entire sense to us and we see what the end result will likely be. It's easy for us to say, yes, I'm gonna walk in obedience to what God has called me to do here because I can see where this leads, where this goes. Too often our actions, our obedience is conditional on if it makes sense to us or not. It's really easy to obey Jesus when it makes sense. But true faith is marked by obedience in the dark. Obedience in the dark. Obedience when you can't see where the end result will go. You have no idea what lies before, but God calls you to it. And not seeing the end result, not knowing how long or where it will go, you still respond in obedience, just as this official did. This is something that God has been working in my life over the last several years, teaching me not just to obey him when it makes sense to me, but to obey him even when I can't see where his plan is leading and guiding. I've shared this with the staff and the elders and the search team, but some of just a little bit of my journey that, that brought me here today. Several years ago, the church that I was at prior to coming here was in a, a senior pastor transition season. They had looked for a senior pastor, hadn't found one over a, a span of about two years. And so they changed their structure and they asked me if I would be considered to be their next teaching pastor at this church. It was a significantly large church, several thousand people attended on a Sunday. I told them I would be honored to be considered for it was a candidate, internal candidate for a year as they did a nationwide search, vetted it over, I think 70, interviewed 70 different candidates till the search team interviewed me and said, yes, we want you. The elders interviewed and said, yes, we want you. And then because of the church structure, it went to the next level, which was what they called their deacon board of about a hundred men. And at that point, due to various reasons, some people didn't like my preaching. I'm secure enough to understand that. Not everyone likes my preaching, that's okay. Some people thought I was too young. Some people wanted a senior pastor. And there was a bunch of different things, not like one major issue. But it kind of became apparent after a year of living in what I think God is doing, that it wasn't going to happen. And in the fall of 2018, that chapter came to a close. And I was left there sitting, I feel like, man, I feel like God has called me to preach 
the word of Jesus. I feel like God's called me to lead in a church and I don't know where that's gonna be. I don't know what that's gonna look like. I thought it was one thing and it was really easy to obey God when you're like, ah, oh, yeah, this is where it's going. It's gonna, be, it's gonna be great. And then the door slammed right in my face and God said this to me, do you trust me even if you have no idea where it's gonna be? Do you trust me even if you have no idea when it's gonna be? Do you trust me even if you have no idea how it's going to happen? I certainly was not perfect in my responses to that. Some days were certainly better than others. But God challenged me with that question over and over again. That even if I don't know where, even if I don't know when, and even if I don't know how, I can still walk in obedience to God. Even if I don't know when, where, or how, I can still walk in obedience to him. See, the thing is, even when God calls us to obedience in the dark, he always gives us enough light to take the next step of obedience. He always gives us that enough light to know what it means to obey God for today. He won't show us five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, but he gives us enough for today. The official obeyed, even though he didn't see. Do we obey? Even the places that we can't see where it leads. Where in your life, is it looking dark into the future? You have no idea where God is leading, what God may be doing, when he will do it, or how he will do it. In that area, will you commit to walking in obedience to him? It doesn't make sense. It's hard because we want to know where it's going and sometimes we just don't. And God says to us, do you really trust me? Because true faith is marked by obedience, not just when it makes sense, but true faith is marked by obedience in the unknown, the unseen of life. God, we thank you for this story. God, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful to us through this journey of life in each and every day. So many things change, but you do not you remain the same. God, I pray for us this morning, for those here who are struggling, who are living life with dark seasons around them. They can't perceive the future. They don't know what you're doing or when you will do it. God, today, would you encourage our hearts to follow in obedience, even in the things where we don't understand? God, would we realize our desperate need for you this morning? God, we aren't okay on our own. We need you. We desperately need you. So would we admit that and seek after you today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.